Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined as always by Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is Tevi Troy, author of Fight House. Welcome, one and all. Uh, Tevi, thanks so much for being with us. Um, you have a new book out that uh, is a, uh, ex- an exploration of White House staffs down through the years, but I think we have to begin with an earlier book of yours, which was called Shall We Wake the President? Because you were so prescient in that book on the topic of the hour, namely coronavirus, you specifically warned in that book that we were unprepared uh, to deal with a, a, uh, a pandemic of coronavirus. Amazing. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mona, and thank you to all for having me on. Uh, it is true I pointed it out, and the reason I pointed it out is because I was in the Bush administration, and we worked very hard on this question of preparing for some kind of pandemic. And the central point, the key element of our preparation was the stockpiling and distribution of countermeasures, by which I mean antivirals and vaccines in case something hits. And I knew from the experience with SARS and MERS that with a coronavirus, we have no countermeasures. So the basic building block of our pandemic response was just not there. And on top of that, we had the problems of the Chinese not being forthcoming about what was going on. So we, I think we were a little late to the party. And then also the, the horrific problem with the testing, which is the other element of our, our approach, which is if you know that there's a problem, you test people and you isolate them and you track and trace who they met with. Without a test, you can't do that. So not having the key building block of countermeasures really put us in a very precarious position. And that's why I pointed that out in Shall We Wake the President. Um, you say that because we, uh, because the Chinese were not honest about the nature of the problem, we were late to the party, but that's not the whole reason, is it? I mean, other nations, um, were able to get, uh, busy testing and isolating people and, and contact tracing despite the Chinese government's dishonesty, um, places like Taiwan and, and South Korea, uh, and elsewhere. So that's not the whole explanation, right? No, look, as I said earlier, it's it's a multi-pronged explanation. But when I'm referring to the Chinese dishonesty, the reason I think it's so important is because the public health community had come to believe that they had learned their lesson from SARS and that they were going to be more forthcoming. And what you heard from the WHO, the World Health Organization, was that they were being more forthcoming on uh, on this outbreak. And that just was not true. And I think that is one of the reasons why people were behind on it. This, this desire to believe that the Chinese were going to be more forthcoming this time around because of the bad experience with SARS in 2002-2003. Yeah. Well, there are going to be a lot of threads that are going to have to be pulled together when we do the final post-mortem, sorry to use that term, um, about what went wrong here. But, um, but let's turn to your newest book, which is called Fight House. And uh, it's a fascinating um, exploration of the relationships among staffers in various White Houses, full of great anecdotes. Um, I, I well, just to give one, I was really interested in the uh, the whole relationship uh, between 
Ted Sorensen and Arthur Schlesinger in, in your description of the Kennedy White House, which I had not been familiar with at all. It was very interesting. Um, you know, that Sorensen was sort of up when he was in the White House because he was closer to Kennedy than Schlesinger. But Schlesinger kind of got the last laugh because his book is the one that has come down as, you know, the great uh, Kennedy White House book, whereas uh, nobody even remembers Sorensen's, right? Well, I would say that the Schlesinger book is better remembered. And, and to be fair, Schlesinger was a professional academic historian who'd already won a Pulitzer Prize. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. In, in, to some extent, it's not fair to compare him to Sorensen. But well, during but, those but years in the White House, Sorensen yeah, was on top. Right. And and in your book, you make that point that, you know, it's uh, it, it, Schlesinger had tremendous prestige in the wider world and in, in academia. But within the White House, that wasn't necessarily the case because within the White House, Everything depends. You you could be, you know, you could be Jesus Christ and it wouldn't matter if you didn't have an office close to the president, right? <laughs> yeah, not only that, but they made fun of Sora of Schlesinger because of his position in the East Wing. They said he was in yeah. the, the first lady staff and that he was somehow less than a full staffer because he wasn't in the West Wing with the cool kids. Right. Hey, listen, I had an office in the East Wing for a while, so I know very well where, what kind of uh, Siberia that represents. Uh, <laughs> um, and I also was interested in your uh, description, of course, of the Reagan years, which I knew well, um, having been there, and Linda was too. Um, and uh, I love that description of... Um, uh, that that Stuart Spencer said about Ed Meese that he couldn't organize a two car funeral, um, but uh, but uh, the the th there was a story um, about Meese that didn't make it into your book, so I'll just offer. It. Well, maybe we'll offer it later. You tell us um, why you uh, wanted to write this book and what you hope to achieve with it. Well, as a historian, I'm always looking for subjects that haven't been covered previously. So in my previous books, my book that you mentioned kindly earlier about presidents and disasters, it wasn't something that had been covered previously. My first book about presidents and intellectuals was also a, a new topic. So I was trying to come up with a new idea. And then in 2016, especially in early 2017, there was all this talk about fighting in the Trump White House. And Lord knows there is plenty of it. But I wanted to see is fighting endemic to the White House? Has this happened in previous White House staffs? How much does it happen? Are there things presidents can do to control it? So I started to look into this issue, and I really decided to cabinet by looking at the period since the advent of a White House staff. It didn't really exist before Roosevelt, and Truman is the first president to enter with a White House staff and have his whole tenure, a tenure that included a White House staff. And I found, and this is someone who's a professional White House historian who's worked in the White House, I found so many stories of infighting that I had never heard before, but I said, I've got to make this public. I've got to kind of write about this so that people hear these great stories. Yeah. What, which one is your, I mean, it's, it's like asking what's your favorite child, but what is your favorite story that, that you introduce in this book that ha you hadn't heard before? Well, one story I really loved is in the Carter administration, there were all these fights between Zbig Brzezinski and Cyrus Vance. Brzezinski was the national security advisor. Cy Vance was the secretary of state. And I did not realize that they knew each other before and they had a somewhat friendly relationship. And they even had dinner together the night of Carter's election. And they talked about the prospect of them working together in the White House. And then on the first day of the new administration, Brzezinski is shown his communications console and told this phone rings from the president and this phone over here rings from the secretary of state. 
And Brzezinski, on the first day, yells at the staff and says, yank it out, pointing to the, the, the Secretary of State phone, says, yank it out. I work for the president, not for Vance. So he was kind of <laughs> laying down his marker early. <laughs> yeah. Um, amazing. I, I, I remember when I, was, when I first joined the White House staff as a speechwriter and uh, was told within the first few days that, you know, I would have enemies. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> I was completely mystified. But uh, but yeah, that's... Well, that reminds me of a great Andy Card story that when he joined the Reagan White House on his, his first day, he goes to a meeting and he's asked by this officious looking woman with a clipboard, Baker or Meese? And he says, <laughs> I'm Andy Card. I work for uh, Intergovernmental Affairs. And she says, Baker or Meese? And he says, well, no, I work for the president. And whatever he said, she kept repeating that phrase. And then finally... She said, what's your job title? And he explained the job title. And she looked at him and she said, Baker, and sat him <laughs> on that side of the table. <laughs> That's hilarious. So so the story that I was thinking of about Ed Meese, I don't think is in your book. Maybe it is, and I missed it. But um, uh, one of the, so y- y- as you know, one of the reasons that uh, Jim Baker was able to get that chief of staff slot in, in, in instead of Meese is that Meese was a disorganized person. Um, but, uh, but, and Baker was nothing if not very well organized. And, um, one of the ways that even, so they had this sort of Troika that reigned, that was Baker, Meese and Deaver. And one of the ways that Baker sort of always kept Meese on his back foot was that he just drowned him in paper. He was constantly sending him reports and memos and various things. And Meese, could not handle it. Was constantly losing things, and uh, and it was one of uh, one of Jim Baker's, you know, very clever bureaucratic uh, te- tactics. I, I do tell an aspect of that story, which is that Meese had this briefcase, and it was known as the black hole, where papers would go in and never come out again. That's and exactly. I have this whole thing in the book about all the great nicknames that have been given to other people by their rivals within the White House. But Ed Meese's briefcase is the only object to get a nickname and it was called the Meath case. <laughs> Speaking Mona, if I could just interject because I, yeah, think, you, I, think, I think you were uh, the person who came up with uh, the term the mice uh, to refer <laughs> to the aides uh, to Donald Regan who uh, made many of our lives miserable during our tenure nope. during the Linda, during the Linda, no season. comment, no comment. <laughs> oh, well, I wish I'd known that, Mona. Yeah, I tell no, you it, was, it, it was great, and uh, and they did behave. They were like little scurrying mice. There were two or three of them, and they, you know, were always behind the scenes making everything <laughs> difficult for everybody. And I, I, I'm not going to uh, hold Mona to it, but uh, I at least credit her with coming up with that wonderful term, the mice. Well, um, so, so Tevi, you By the are... way, I do have the mice listed among my nicknames in the, in the, yes. the radio. Yes. yes. And for exactly. history's sake, they were David Chu, Al Kingon, Tom Dawson, Dennis Thomas, not really famous people, but the nickname has lived on. That is true. And, uh, and yeah, that, but yeah, the, the Don Regan switch with Jim Baker, where they, they, um, swapped jobs in the second administration. I think you described it as the worst trade in history or something. Yeah. The worst staff trade in white house history. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the reason it was is because Baker, as you said earlier, was so talented and so organized and so efficient and, 
Don Regan just wasn't prepared for the job. He didn't really know Reagan that well. And one of the reasons he wanted to be chief of staff is because as treasury secretary, he said he never had a meeting alone with Reagan in the whole first four years. And so he comes up with this idea over a lunch with Baker. It was actually a reconciliation lunch. They'd had a bit of a tip about something that Baker had leaked, which Baker was always leaking. And then Regan comes to the White House, is really not prepared for the job. In fact, Nancy Reagan said about him that he's pretty good at the chief part, but not good at the of staff part. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that was that was a famous put down and a good one. Um, and uh, and he made the cardinal mistake of tangling with Nancy Reagan. And so that spelled his doom. But um, yeah, even but, worse, he hung up on Nancy Reagan. And yeah. Jim Baker, when he heard about this, said, that's not a firing offense. That's a hanging offense. <laughs> right. right. I, I do think, though, you know, I, I think it's worth repeating a story that um, Listeners to the, um, the to the Charlie Sykes podcast uh, may have heard already, but it's worth repeating because of what it says about the fact that we really did have a different era um, in 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 the past. So the story is about Baker, namely um, when he was working for um, George H. W. Bush. Uh, who was president, and and some staffers at the State Department went sort of rooting around in Bill Clinton's uh, files and found his uh, request for a passport to go to the USSR as a student, uh, and uh, and and Baker fired them for that uh, because this was clearly a political act. They were trying to find dirt that they could use against Clinton in the camp that that the uh, Bush campaign might use against Clinton, and Baker um, fired them. And and said they would never use that stuff um, against Clinton, and it's really sort of arresting to to reflect that that actually happened, and that it's you know it we haven't always had the idea that anything goes in in politics. Uh, these days, those staffers would probably get the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That's exactly <laughs> right. Or the people who didn't do it might get in trouble. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so yeah. Well, anyway, Tevi, it's a uh, it's a great read. It's like um, you know when you're reading a, uh, a a dry history book and you come upon you know some funny anecdotes about interpersonal conflict or whatever. It sort of brightens things up. Well, your whole book is those those great little anecdotes. <laughs> so um, so it's really a fun read and. Uh, we uh, we thank you so much for for coming on and uh, and talking about it with us. It's called Fight House. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and uh, always happy to talk about Fight House. And sometime I'd love to hear Bill's take on what I said about the Clinton administration, which was a, a very disorganized first term with a lot of infighting, but they kind of rallied around the flag in the second. <laughs> okay, Bill, do you want to say anything about that now, or you want to save it for another time? No, let's save it for another time. Okay, very good. All right. How are we doing in meeting this emergency? Uh, I was looking for reflections on the leadership that we are stuck with. Um, That would be Trump and Ron DeSantis and Bernie Sanders and Brian Kemp and Andrew Cuomo. Who would like to weigh in? Well, I'll weigh in since uh, there seems to be some reluctance from uh, from the other guests. Um, I will say, you know, I give have been giving Mario Cuomo very high marks, but I must say that his hour long briefings. 
I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I'm still thinking, oh, I just, I just aged myself. <laughs> Andrew Como, hi, Marks. But, uh, but I'm getting sort of tired of these hour-long briefings. I mean, this morning he had his brother Chris on, who has a show on CNN, and it was, you know, a lot of banter and some silliness. And uh, But I'm not really looking for entertainment right now from governors. I'm looking for leadership. And I far prefer some of the more straightforward briefings like Larry Hogan of, of uh, Maryland has done uh, and others who just come on, give the facts, tell what they want uh, their citizens to be doing and not sort of turning this into, uh, you know, a soliloquy of sorts with a lot of philosophizing and, and touchy feely stuff. I, I'm just getting a little tired of it. Uh, which is to say that uh, Andrew Cuomo, who I was, you know, giving much higher marks than I was a Donald Trump, is now sort of come down a little bit in my in my estimation. And the Trump briefings, I think, have done a tremendous disservice. And I, you know, I don't know how others feel about this. I don't know what the answer is, whether or not. It would be more appropriate uh, for the news organizations to be basically recording them and then bringing us the relevant snippets. But he gets on and does everything from, you know, engage in grievance uh, to uh, making false claims about uh, cures and uh, giving misinformation, which is not very helpful. And, uh, you know, now he's even turning them into just, you know, showcasing his administration's activities in a host of other areas. And they do, I think, sort of fulfill the purpose that for him that his rallies did. It gets him before an audience. He gets to stand up there and be the big shot. And I don't know that they're all that helpful. He spent, Damon, two hours the other day at one of these uh, press conferences, showboating, and and as Linda says, you know, spewing a variety of different kinds of things, including misinformation. Um, some of the members, some of the media organizations, have decided not to carry them live. We we touched on this a little bit last week. Um, what do you, what do you think that do you think that's um, a good idea? Is this a trap for the networks that if they fall into it, they'll be accused of being part of the deep state conspiracy or the media conspiracy against him? What do you, what do you think the best thing is to do about this? Well, it's, it's a tough problem as so many times the interactions between the media and Trump tend to be uh, lots of traps and, uh, uh, sort of uh, tripwires around. I mean, I, I think that probably the best approach would be, at least for now, while we're still kind of in the thick of this and the worst of it, is to start with broadcasting uh, the the briefing and then just use your judgment as a news director about when to cut away when it seems to be getting just self-indulgent, kind of as the ratio of uh, pot shots at journalists rises in relation to actual facts being stated, uh, if you can even judge that they're factual. Um, but if you if the news organization simply refuse to show them and sort of makes them look peevish and plays into the Trump narrative that they're just biased against them and fake news and so forth. And he is the president of the United States at a time of national crisis. So what are you going to do? I mean, what... 
What I found sort of interesting this week was, as you, I think, mentioned a minute ago, his tone sort of changed a few days ago. It's like he came out, uh, I guess it was Tuesday evening for the one that went on for two hours, and he suddenly sounded sober and grave and started talking about all the deaths we're going to see. And he sort of sounded more like what you would expect a president to sound like in these kind of periods. But of course, we're now grading on such an incredibly steep curve that a lot of journalists then respond to this and start tweeting out things like, oh, wow, he's finally taking this seriously. But yeah, of course, this he, is the day he became president. Yeah, finally, <laughs> finally, in the third year. Um, but of course, he knows that. He, he, can, he can behave badly day after day after day. But if in one day he comes out and is a little bit more on script for a president, suddenly he gets credit for just doing the bare minimum of normal. So we have to be also, I think, on guard about that, because that too is a form of Trumpian manipulation. Can I just briefly toss in um, my colleague at the week, uh, Ryan Cooper, uh, who is uh, several steps to my left, uh, so I don't cite him a lot on here, but uh, he's a very smart guy and an honest writer, and, and he wrote a very good column this week, really singling out uh, Jay Inslee out in Washington as someone who is doing uh, uh, really a better job than anyone, including Andrew Cuomo, uh, certainly more than someone like DeSantis, whom I will leave to someone else to dissect. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it is worth singling him out as someone who, uh, Mona, you, you hadn't mentioned at the top, who who really was got started on this before just about anywhere else. I think Washington had the first recorded case of uh, uh, COVID-19 back in January. And, uh, and he's been handling it well. Their, their curve has been quite flattened uh, well ahead of everybody else, not just because they were first, but because he's been leading in a pretty smart way and without a little bit of the kind of macho grandstanding that I think some of us are starting to flinch at from the Cuomo briefings. Mm. Um, it's just uh, uh, just a small little footnote to the Cuomo thing um, because I agree, Linda. The the it, the the uh, schmaltzy routine that he was doing with his brother was a bit much. On the other hand, it is very sad that uh, Chris Cuomo is now uh, one of the people who has the illness. Um, and apparently, it's not. It, I mean, as he d- described it on his own show last night, uh, and again referred to it this morning. It's not been easy. This is no. not, you know, as we hear these even so-called mild cases involve uh, shaking, I guess what he called rigors, spelled rigors. Uh, that, shaking chills. Uh, and Yeah, yeah shaking mm-hmm. chills with the fever that were so bad that he actually chipped a tooth. So oh. this is, you know, this is not, wow. uh, this is not your normal flu. I mean, I think no. this goes back to what we were told. Um the flu is one thing. This is something entirely new and different. And some of the medical information is coming out now, Mona. There's now some indication that with some individuals, it may cross the blood-brain uh, barrier, and it may, in fact, be affecting the brain. They don't know if that's what's happening or whether it's just oxygen deprivation that's leading uh, to people uh, basically losing judgment. One patient showed up unable to speak. 
Um, and so this is, uh, this is just a really, really serious disease that I think we weren't prepared for. And it was interesting when Tevi talked about the warnings that came during the Bush years. The warnings came in the Obama years, too. That is and, true. And we just did not pay close enough attention. Yeah. I mean, um, Bill uh, Galston wrote a great piece this week about uh, how we're, there's going to need to be a 9-11 style commission uh, at some point to examine all of our errors. But um, surely one of them uh, will be that uh, the the stockpile of equipment, you know, uh, you know, masks, gloves and other PPE for our healthcare workers was just criminally uh, undersourced. And um, there was a hearing actually back in very early February, I think, when uh, Mitt Romney was questioning Anthony Fauci and others um, uh, at this hearing asked, you know, well, how many do you think we're going to need, for example, of the, of the masks? And they said, um, no, how many do you have in the stockpile? And they said, 35 million. And he said, and how many do you estimate we would need in the event that this disease becomes as bad as it's looking. They said 3.5 billion. Okay. And, um, so, you know, the, the stockpile and, and then apparently some of the, um, uh, ventilators that were in the stockpile were not maintained. They were just, you know, and so they're really not functional. Um, these are, these are things that, it's very, very hard for democracies who are, and especially for us, where we're very focused on the here and now and, um, you know, let the future take care of itself. I mean, you don't run trillion dollar deficits every year if you're thinking about the future. <laughs> and similarly, I guess you don't take care to have some medical supplies on hand in case of a rainy day. But my God, I mean, it is it is the most irresponsible thing we can say now with looking back with the retrospectoscope. Um, and, uh, and grownups are supposed to be able to make judgments like that, that you, you have to plan for a rainy day, that you have to be, you, you have to have medical supplies on hand in case of a, of a pandemic. Bill? Well, you've done a pretty good job of summarizing my article. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a couple of things strike me. First of all, as I looked at the record and accumulated the sources to write the piece, uh, I, I discovered warnings and admonitions of all kinds going back a quarter of a century. Uh, we're talking about four consecutive administrations uh, that, were, that were warned pretty directly, particularly about the medical stockpiles. And somehow, in those four administrations, nothing ever happened. Uh, we are able to maintain our strategic petroleum reserve at or near capacity through thick and thin, but sometimes, but somehow when it comes to our strategic medical reserve, we just fall flat on our faces. I, I confess I'm still surprised and shocked a few days after doing the research for the piece. And Clearly, one of the things that the 9-11 style commission that I recommended at the end of the end of the piece is going to have to focus on is the issue of mechanisms to ensure that in sunny in sunny times as well as rainy times, we are keeping that stockpile full, up to date, and well maintained. 
Uh, and we're also going to have to find out why on virtually a yearly basis, going back a number of years now, pandemic simulations have been run that made it very clear that if we were confronted with one next next week or next month, we wouldn't be remotely close to ready. And that produced no action either. So I think that, uh, as I said at the beginning of the piece, we don't have a policy problem here. We have a governance problem. We don't have the appropriate mechanisms in place where people are tasked with the job of what I, what I call organized foresight. Citizens who are going about their daily lives are hard-pressed enough just to look around the corner and save for the future of their, their children and their families, and many can't. Uh, and so in a representative democracy, foresight is delegated to responsible officials and agencies and citizens who don't have any capacity to monitor those agencies have to assume that they're doing their job. Well, and so we need we need to rethink the entire governance structure of our emergency healthcare system and make sure that next time this happens, we are making new mistakes and not old mistakes. So let me just add Mona's footnote to Bill's argument, and it would be this. I suspect that in the next five or 10 years, you won't get an argument from anybody about the stockpile of medical supplies and maintaining it. And you won't get an argument from anybody about, you know, um, uh, various things to do with public health, because this experience will have been so searing that there will be, it will be front of mind. But what this should also remind us of is all the other potential disasters that can befall a country that you also have to plan ahead for. You know, we, we have FEMA and we have, you know, emergency management uh, aspects of our government that are sort of designed for the things we usually get, which is tornadoes and floods and, and, uh, and snowstorms, blizzards and whatever. But we don't have a plan for massive simultaneous natural disasters striking more than one area of the country at, at once. If that were to happen, we'd be very, very hard pressed. And um, so that's worth thinking about. And, um, you know, the other, there are other kinds of things that, that uh, countries ought to have a rainy day fund for. And uh, again, going back to the earlier point, this is another reason why you don't want to spend all your money uh, and and money you don't have on just day-to-day expenses as we've been doing. Um, You know, Mona, I guess one of the things though, that I think we can learn from all of this is that it stockpiles are great and and obviously they ought to be renewed and we ought to make sure that we have enough uh, stuff in the stockpile uh, to be able to survive a crisis. But the other issue is having plans in place that you can basically set in in process immediately when something like this strikes to begin to mobilize. I mean, you know, it is one thing to mobilize General Motors and other big companies to do ventilators. Those are very complicated machines. They require, you know, tool and die and and all sorts of, of, uh, you know, things that are not just 
ordinary people and ordinary companies can't provide. But putting together protective gear for our frontline workers. Uh, we have a, you know, not, not as big a garment industry as we used to in the past, but we have some of a garment industry. And it just, you know, this is not something I think that necessarily we want to leave it entirely to the private sector to decide on their own to gear up. And here is where I think Trump has been woefully uh, negligent. And that is in using the power of the federal government to set in motion the mechanism to produce the items that we need in a hurry. And, you know, the invoking the Defense uh, Act, you know, he was late in doing that. He did it with GM and it was almost as if he did it as a grudge against, you know, the CEO whom he doesn't like at at GM uh, rather than based on some sort of strategic plan. But this is something that I think that the Bill Galston, you know, talked about this commission that seems uh, that needs to be set up. And apparently now it's going to be set up. Um, Nancy Pelosi has announced that there's going to be a bipartisan uh, commission to look at the coronavirus response. Uh, But that is something that absolutely needs to be put in place and it can't be ideological and it has to be something that at least we have a plan, even if the plan has to be modified so that we know what to do next. Well, I'm going to get ideological, not ideological, but I, I, I think that the greatest lesson to, uh, you know, before the 9-11 commission or, or the coronavirus commission does a, the first investigation, I'm ready to come out with my conclusion, which is that when the voters are considering whether to elect somebody to be president of the United States, if their first and last consideration is not, is this person competent? Are they fit for the office to which we are uh, elevating them? If that isn't what the, is in front of mind for voters, then they are failing. And we, the voters failed in 2016. Uh, Donald Trump is not equal to the job. His, his foolishness and self-absorption clearly cost lives here. Um, and not just Trump, but all of his enablers in the, in the media and, uh, and, and in the Republican Party, who for those critical 10 weeks um, peddled falsehoods, lies. To this very day, as a um, survey that came out from the people who do, um, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, the, 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 the centrist folks, I'm forgetting the name of the people who did this, this poll. It'll come to me later, but third, third way, perhaps not third way it was, it was one of those types though. But anyway, what they found was that even, even as recently as the last few days, um, you, there is still a huge partisan divide in when you ask people whether they are taking precautions um, uh, about the arts, are they, you know, hand-washing, are they social distancing and so on and so forth. And it is still the case because of the behavior of the Republican Party and this president that Republicans are not adhering to these uh, to these rules nearly as strictly as Democrats or independents. This is criminal. I mean, it is, first of all, it's harmful to those people. It's also harmful to the larger society uh, because viruses don't discriminate. And um, and it is just, uh, it, it that has to be, 
something that voters consider. I don't know whether it will penetrate though, because there's just so much noise and, uh, and, and so much, you know, motivated reasoning. I, I don't know. Well, uh, George Bernard Shaw once said that democracy is the only form of government in which the people get exactly what they deserve. <laughs> uh, well, um, well, you know, Mona, you, you raise an interesting point, though, demographically. I know back um, in better times, uh, Republicans would always look at demographics and say, you know, our, our people may have more children, you know, they, they do trend older now. But there was, there was some hope that a demography was going to be on the side of the Republicans. Well, that changed rather dramatically when we saw big demographic changes with immigrants and Hispanics in particular, who I think Republicans had a chance to be able to win over, but blew that chance with their uh, nasty stance on immigration. But if you look at those maps that are showing the kind of movement and the way in which uh, the states that are still not really clamping down on social distancing are in the South and in Republican strongholds, this disease may have a very unfortunate um, demographic consequence to play in terms of uh, these states. And you may see that, you know, all of that uh, happy talk on the part or conspiracy talk on the part of places like Fox News Channel and and the Trump uh, administration may end up biting them in that when it hits, and it will hit, it's going to hit harder in those areas. Well, that's absolutely true. Uh, And there was a report out of West Virginia today that I found very interesting. Uh, We know that the coronavirus hits older people harder than younger people. We also know that it hits people with pre-existing conditions uh, like diabetes, like heart disease, and various sorts of breathing impairments harder. Uh, And that is a pretty good description of the population of greater Appalachia, which is the heart of Trump country. Uh, With a delay, I'm afraid that, uh, that, that people who densely populate West Virginia and all the way down, all, all the way down almost to Texas are going to be at greater risk. They will die in greater numbers. Many of them are in areas that are served only by understaffed and under-resourced rural hospitals. Uh, and they are far from urban centers. And when they reach urban centers, if they do, they will find hospitals that are already overburdened. Uh, I think that there is going to be not just a demographic divide, but a death divide at the end of the day. And uh, it's one of the many things that we're going to have to look at very hard once the dust settles on this crisis. The other frustrating thing is that you, I have the sense, having listened to um, the read the and listened to the, the the medical experts, it you know it's our only tool really since we don't have a vaccine yet and we don't have uh, therapeutic drugs for the treatment of this disease yet. The only tool in our toolbox right now is behavior. It's social distancing and hand washing, basically. That's it, but. 
This is very effective. And in the areas where it has been put into effect, it is working. I mean, we are bending the curve in, in certain parts of the country. And so the frustrating thing to me is that we are doing unbelievable damage to the economy. You know, 6.6 .6 million new uh, uh, unemployment uh, applications this week. Um, the um, We're doing terrible harm to the economy, which is harming people in countless other ways in order to get a handle on this, on this virus when if the entire country would cooperate and all shut down for three solid weeks uh, together and just get over the worst of it, we could probably avoid this sort of rolling problem where you, it stretches on for months and months with no end in sight and more and more economic devastation. That's exactly right, Mona. I mean, that is absolutely right. I was in Warren County, Virginia this uh, weekend. Um, I have a place, a cabin there. And I went with my husband and my son, who's been totally isolated. And uh, I happened to have, I had to do shopping. I went into the Walmart there. And it was amazing to see the difference between what a store looks like in, in suburban Montgomery County and what it looked like out there in rural Virginia. Uh, people were in there, not social distancing. Parents were bringing all of their children. I saw uh, two moms with six kids in tow. I saw one father with four kids with him. I saw others with two or three. There were teenagers hanging out. Um, and it was, you know, really frightening. And then later uh, in the day driving, I, I saw a local custard stand, which I, which I love uh, in Shenandoah County. There were about a hundred people lined up to get frozen custard. Uh. And, you know, and it just, I, I actually said to these two women with all the kids as they were going into the store, I said, you know, you really ought to think about leaving the kids outside and not going in with them. And I was told in words that I will not uh, repeat, basically to shut up. Um, but, you know, I was trying to be helpful. There were yeah. a couple of people uh, in there who looked like me, weekenders, uh, who seemed to be, you know, ab abiding by the rules. But these other folks, it was, it was as if it was just a normal Saturday. There were the, the Walmart parking lot was full. The only difference was there wasn't much meat. The only meat I could find was skinless breasts of chicken, which I don't think is a big hit out there. <laughs> big hit out there yeah. yeah, but, oh. but you know, it, it's, you know, I, it, it was really frightening and it was so clear that they're not, they're not buying it. They're either not hearing it or they're not believing it. And you're absolutely right. If we could shut down the whole country for three weeks and everybody do what they're supposed to do, we might be able to basically wipe this thing out. Yeah, break its I think, back. I think that uh, I think what we're all sort of saying uh, is that the major problem is really American culture. I mean, we're not good at this. First of all, we're enormous—three hundred and thirty million people across an entire continent with lots of kind of subcultures, lots of divisions, and a lot of a kind of ingrown suspicion of authority that can be triggered very easily for partisan gain. And that just sort of is the kind of default trigger in a lot of people. I mean, there's one, one important reason, for example, why Germany is doing relatively well with all of this is simply a kind of cultural difference. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I lived in Berlin back in the 1990s. And Ber- this is in Berlin, which was a pretty edgy place. A lot of punks around, a lot of kind of self-styled anarchists, guys with mohawks and piercings and all kinds of places. You could be on a city street in Berlin at three in the morning and a guy dressed like I just described, coming out of a club where he'd been partying all night, and he comes to a stoplight at a crosswalk at 3 o'clock in the morning, and if it's red, he's going to stand there with no cars coming for two minutes waiting for a green light. Ah, Germany. Yes. Uh, Achtung, baby. Even the anarchists are law-abiding. Exactly. They just, there, it's the opposite. It's default submission to authority. And so yeah. you can actually, and in a pandemic, you can get something done in an environment like that. Whereas well, here, let, me sp- the opposite. let me speak up for American culture for just a minute. Uh, and also American government. Uh, I am not sorry that we have a system of federalism right now. Uh, and because federalism is worse in its effects than inspired national leadership. But it's better than the kind of leadership we have now. Yeah. Uh, And if the governors didn't have the authority, didn't have constitutionally protected police powers uh, to declare emergencies in their states, we'd be much farther behind than we are now. That's That's true. That's point number one. Point number two, in you know in american history we're always terrible getting started in response to disasters or challenges uh and it's like a great machine that sort of rumbles and shakes as it's getting into motion but once it does get into motion it's hard to stop so that and uh, I could give lots of historical examples. And the, the third point I'll make is that uh, our culture of individualism and innovation uh, can produce very important results in astonishingly short periods of time. I could give you a bunch of anecdotes from th- from this crisis, uh, and I'm. I'm not sorry on balance that we lack Asian and German levels of social compliance. Um, So I I agree um, about our natural creativity um, and openness to innovation, which I think will, has always served us well and will in this crisis too. Regarding your second point though, I'm more skeptical. Look, uh, yeah, the United States was very slow to, to get off it back after Pearl Harbor that's fam- you know famously we uh, fumbled around for a while we lost a bunch of battles in the beginning of our involvement with World War II and then we we got our feet under us and and then we were unstoppable okay that's right and the same thing happened in the war of 1812 I mean we were so bad at the beginning of the war of 1812 that the British were able to burn down our capital but um, and then eventually Andrew Jackson won the Battle of New Orleans and okay. But this isn't a war. This is a disease. And when you lose those critical few, first few weeks, when your only opportunity is to is to test and to contact trace, you don't get that opportunity back again. I'm not and arguing. So if you're slow off the mark, there, it's a, it's devastating. Look, and- I've, I've I've been writing about this, and of course you're of course you're right. 
I'm, I'm just trying to suggest that as we appropriately wring our hands about our feckless, disorganized response until <laughs> basically three days ago, uh, I think there are also some strengths in our system that we need to keep our eyes on because we need islands of hope wherever we can find them. But look, if you have national leadership that isn't up to the job, then even in a highly federalized system, there are going to be, there are going to be costs that you cannot possibly repay. Okay, so one of the things that's happened this uh, past couple of weeks is that the the new narrative coming out of the White House and and some of uh, the Trumpkins is that uh, this is the China virus, the Wuhan virus. They um, inflicted this on the world, and that if they hadn't lied and if they hadn't done this, um, you know, everything would be fine. Um, and the Chinese, meanwhile are using this as a propaganda opportunity as well. They have spread the rumor that this virus was cooked up in a U.S. Uh, biowarfare lab. Um, and, um, and China is now presenting itself to the world as the benevolent superpower. They are distributing free medical supplies to Italy and other countries that are stricken. Um, they are um, presenting themselves as having conquered this this bug, um, which may or may not be true, but that's the story that they're telling. Um, and they are explicitly saying that it is China, not the U.S., that is the world leader in fighting the virus. Um, is this going to work, Damon? Well, I, it might. I mean, I, I'm sort of in the middle between a lot of people on the right who are really pivoting, as you said, to kind of blame China for this. I mean, did China react like a responsible citizen in all respects over the first month or so of the virus? No, they didn't. They lied and disseminated and, and, and did all kinds of things to sort of downplay the severity of the problem, and they have continued to lie. Uh, we are now pretty much sure about the, the number of casualties or fatalities that they have suffered. So all of the comparative statistics you see between rates of death in China and Italy and the United States are, are worthless when it comes to the Chinese side of it. So all of that is true, but I, I'm very, uh, very resistant to uh, just sort of calling it the Chinese virus and then being able to deflect all blame here. And frankly, when it comes to a virus, there obviously we always have to look at blame and trying to improve things in the future. But the fact is that viruses happen. And in the final analysis, there isn't going to be a person who's to blame for it. It's a virus. It's It spreads. We have supply chains, patterns of uh, and habits of travel, intertwined globalized economies. And it, with a sufficiently uh, contagious illness, it's going to spread. And that's what we're dealing with here. So I, I really don't like the scapegoating of of uh, of China for the sake of trying to deflect things and also to, uh, you know, kind of let ourselves off the hook of just really the fact that this is just a bad thing that we're having to deal with here. Um, and as for whether China can, you know, use it to its advantage on the world stage, it's going to keep trying. I mean, just today there was a story about how 
the Massachusetts governor struck a deal for supplies, uh, getting a million and 95 masks coming from China and they're coming on the New England Patriots 767 airplane. So it's even happening here, not just in Italy. Uh, and this, this is a very effective uh, kind of uh, soft propaganda for the Chinese regime that's going to link in with their ambitions on trade with uh, the, the, their uh, various uh, trade deals and other, uh, you know, the Belt Road project all over the developing world. So it's a problem and we're going to have to deal with it for a long time past uh, the present. And especially because we are pulling back. So Linda, um, Matt Cottonetti, uh, that is, we are pulling back from our world role, at least under Trump. Um, Matt Cottonetti uh, has argued that this crisis will enhance the nationalist right all around the world, that the idea that we are you know, a world community and that we trade freely with one another is going to take a, a hard blow, uh, and that the idea that, that authoritarian countries are better at dealing with things like this will take hold. And um, so w- what do you think um, about, you know, oh, and he also makes the point that, you know, we will, we will be chastened because we will have found that it's dangerous to allow our, our um, supplies of medicine and, and medical supplies to be so dependent on outsiders. So he says that this is, this is a great thing for the nationalists. Well, I, I hope that's not the case. However, I will say that I think it is sobering and we do have to think uh, about um, our strategic reserves. I mean, we've thought about it as, you know, somebody mentioned earlier, we've got the strategic oil reserve, certainly things like medicines, um, you know, being, I, I do believe in, in free trade. And I think globalization has on balance benefited us and benefited the world. It's benefited rich countries, it's benefited poor countries. On the other hand, I think the idea that we have become so dependent on one country, namely China, for some of our medicines is not necessarily a good thing. And, you know, it's one thing to be dependent on, uh, you know, countries that have cheaper labor to produce our clothing. And it's quite another thing to be dependent on them for producing something that uh, keeps us alive. And so I do think there's going to be some rethinking about this. And I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I would hope that it is done thoughtfully. And as I said, I think if we do have kind of a, uh, you know, review um, of what went wrong, that there are going to be areas that we carve out and we say, we have to have the ability to ramp up very quickly to produce what we need uh, in this kind of medical emergency. And that um, I think would be good. And I would hope that if it's done right, that it will not lead us to to do what some of the uh, Trumpists would like to see, uh, which is, again, to try to build Fortress America. That's not going to work um, either. And, you know, with Fortress America, even, even with us having shut off travel from many parts of the world, uh, something like a virus can, in fact, cross borders fairly easily. It doesn't take, you know, entire... Um, loads of of planes with infected uh, uh, people from China to come here to infect us. Once you get a few uh, people with it and it is unchecked and it spreads quickly, uh, it's here and it's homegrown. So 
I hope we take it seriously. I hope we begin to think about uh, our strategic reserves and things like medicine uh, and medical equipment uh, more thoughtfully. I hope we don't decide that um, we have to become entirely self-sufficient and that we can go it alone in the future. Right. That that sounds exactly exactly right. By the way, um, the governor of Georgia, uh, Kemp, apparently said today, this is, we're recording this on Thursday, April 2nd, apparently he only learned as of yesterday that the virus can be transmitted even by those who show no symptoms. So, okay. Well, <laughs> um, you tell us where he's getting his news from. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on before we get to our final segment, things we want to draw attention to, um, the uh, um, the piece that Damon wrote this week about, uh, about Victor Orban. So one of the things that's been happening um, around the world is that bad actors have been seizing upon this crisis to um, to try to get away with power grabs that um, they might not be able to do under ordinary circumstances. And one of them is somebody who's already gone a fair way toward um, hobbling the democracy that was that existed in Hungary. And that's Viktor Orban. Um, so um, if you wouldn't mind, Damon, just uh, because because the, the, what's what's so interesting about this case is that Orban has been a darling of some in some quarters on the right. So why don't you tell us what he did and and then, you know, summarize your piece, which was so good. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, Orban uh, had been in negotiations with uh, the legislature in Hungary for a week or so. Uh, his own party, the Fidesz party, uh, controls a strong majority in the parliament, the, the National Assembly there. And they ended up, uh, the, he had already declared a state of emergency. And on Monday, uh, they made this essentially a permanent state with no defined end date. This includes um, uh, the suspension of parliament, the suspension of all elections, uh, the ability of Orban to rule by decree, and also um, most kind of resonantly with an American reality that anyone uh, convicted of spreading, quote, fake news would face up to five years in jail. Um, so now I have a lot of, because I used to, I used to be on, uh, the kind of the, uh, the right myself, uh, I was the editor of first things magazine for a time, uh, which I think came up in the last podcast. I still have a lot of friends, uh, and, uh, former allies, uh, on the right. That includes people like, uh, Rod Dreher. Uh, and Patrick Deneen and um, uh, Rusty Reno, who wrote the piece I was critical of last week, uh, Chris Caldwell. Uh, and I, I, I've never met Zohab uh, uh, Armani. Uh, Sohrab so Amari. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At uh, the New York Post, although we've exchanged uh, certain things via tweets and DMs on Twitter and so forth. But all of those people I just mentioned over the last year or so have written very favorable things about Orban. Uh, like on the one hand, they're very, very critical of a lot of things about American democracy because of the insidious influence of liberalism and its uh, its attempted to kind of 
uh, oppress uh, traditional Christian faith, and then very positive about uh, this alternative that they see in the Law and Justice Party in Poland and Orban's uh, Fidesz Party in uh, Hungary and then other, other such movements around the world. And because I'm sort of friends with these people, I wrote a, a, a column that I guess you could describe as written in a tone of more in sorrow than in anger, uh, but still a little irritated uh, at all of these friends of mine pointing to things they've said and pointing to the news this week and effectively saying, so are you perhaps what Vladimir Lenin called uh, uh, useful idiots or do you actually sort of like what you're seeing here? Please come out and declare yourselves. And uh, I'm sad to say that at least as of the, the time that we are recording this, I don't think any of them have publicly said anything. Rod Dreher is the one who has the greatest ability to respond because he has a very prominent blog at the American Conservative. And, you know, he and I go way back. We're, we've been friends for 20 years and, and, and we remain in touch regularly and are very friendly. And my friendship with him means a lot. But uh, so I assume he will say something uh, at some point in response. Uh, the others, I just don't know. But it's a, it's a sad thing. I mean, just today, there is another story on Thursday that uh, anti-Semitic authors will soon be compulsory reading in Hungarian schools. Uh, so you know, this is all part of, uh, you know, I, I, I said in my typical hyperbolic way uh, in a tweet uh, the other day when the news came out on Monday about what had happened in the uh, National Assembly, Assembly in Hungary, I tweeted, so in other words, the coronavirus was the Reichstag fire for Viktor Orban, which is a pretext for abolishing democracy. And, and you know, you don't have to assume Orban's going to literally reproduce Adolf Hitler to realize that this is, this is the play. This is how you do it. You chip away at the margins of democracy over a period of time, and then a crisis happens, and it's an opportunity that gets seized. And that's, I'm afraid, what we've been living through. Yes. And what's, what's most... Um disturbing to me is, you know, of course, it's very sad for Hungary, but what's most disturbing to me is the response of some on the right. I mean, there, for example, National Review has had lots of nice things to say about Orban, um, very closely associated with people who work for Orban, who are actually getting checks from him. That would be John O'Sullivan, the former editor of National Review as part of a, a foundation that is funded by Orban. Um, and um, uh, Yoram Hazoni, um, uh, who wrote a book in defense of nationalism and has run these national conservatism conferences, had um, Orban as a guest at his most recent conference in, um, in Rome. And Chris DeMuth, former president of the American Enterprise Institute, um, interviewed Orban. Um, further, we have not heard a peep out of the State Department about this action by Hungary. We haven't heard anything uh, from the White House, uh, this is um, this is this is very revealing. Um, and we didn't, you know, you mentioned the anti-Semitism. Of course, the 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 that was in evidence for people to see a while ago. I mean, the the very obvious anti-Semitic themes that they were trotting out in their attacks on George Soros. And you don't have to love George Soros to think that the anti-Semitic attacks on him are disgusting. And that's the kind of thing that they. Um, that they did. Anyway, um, 
very, uh, very worrisome. All right. Um, final segment, things that caught our eye. Um, Bill, you want to start? Yeah. Uh, a sort of a, a reflection on what Matt Continetti said, uh, because there are some respects in which this crisis is strengthening internationalism, not just nationalism. For example, uh, scientists from countries on all different parts of ideological and governance divides are pooling their information in real time as never before in order to come up with a vaccine. Uh, this, is, this has been described to me as an unprecedented level of global scientific cooperation. And my hope is that if this transnational effort actually produces a usable vaccine and measurably faster than it usually happens, uh, that this is going to be part of the narrative uh, over, the, over the next few years and may have other benign consequences down the road. Great, great thought. Yes. Linda? Well, I'm going to um, offer something that I had very mixed feelings about. It was the editorial in the Boston Globe, which uh, is entitled A President Unfit for a Pandemic. And the subhead is much of the suffering and death coming was preventable. The president has blood on his hands. I am no fan of Donald Trump, as anyone who has listened to a word I've said knows. But I think there is a danger that when we start using phrases like blood on his hands, when we start pointing fingers in quite that graphic a way, we'll end up having exactly the opposite effect that we want. I think there is a lot of reason to criticize uh, this administration, as I've made clear. Uh, even Nancy Pelosi's appointing this commission at this point in time. I have sort of mixed feelings about it. I think there needs to be a commission. I do need, uh, think we need to take a look at it. But I think we have to be careful that we, um, you know, if, if our intention is, as mine certainly is, to see a new president elected, we don't want to do things that are so over the top um, and so uh, nasty personally and graphic in, in the way that headline was, uh, that they have the exact opposite effect of the one that we have. So I, I hope that liberals um, and those fellow critics of Trump will be somewhat more um, judicious in their use of language. Well, you may, have, you may have read the article this morning about Chuck Todd's effort to get Joe Biden to use the words blood on his hands. Mm-hmm. I did uh, not. And, and Biden wisely declined to go in that direction, despite being prompted more than once to do so. Yeah. Sometimes Biden's natural instincts are good, are his good friend. Not always, but in this Not instance, always. yeah. Yes. Um, Damon. Yeah, this is going to be a little bit different uh, for me. Anyone who's a regular listener and reads my uh, column in the week uh, in, with any regularity knows that aside from weighing in on politics all the time, I have a minor sidelight in writing about uh, rock music. Uh, 
and I, I care a lot about it. And uh, I, it's it's uh, not just a hobby, but something I, I've been writing about on and off for my whole career. And uh, for that reason, I wanted to highlight uh, the death of Adam Schlesinger, who is one of two of the very talented songwriters of the rock band Fountains of Wayne, uh, who died yesterday at age 52 of the coronavirus. And the reason I'm bringing this up is if he had just sort of, if he had just died but for any old reason, I probably wouldn't have brought it up in this context. But uh, I thought it was worth noting that, you know, our country, as we've discussed today, are divided, some taking this more seriously than others, some lagging in their seriousness of it. But the sad truth is that uh, this is all going to hit all of us in different ways over the coming days, weeks, and months as people that we love and or admire are taken down by it. And the fact that uh, a guy as talented and who I admired as much as Schlesinger, who was only 52, uh, ended up getting uh, felled by the virus uh, is is something that hit me. And I'm sure it hit a bunch of other people. And if, if this guy's death didn't, someone else's is going too soon because this is the world we live in right now. It's worth mentioning uh, in that context that um, Ellis Marcellus was also... Um felled by this virus. He's the father of Wynton Marsalis and Branford Marsalis, great jazz musicians. Wynton Marsalis is also a classical musician, part of his career. Um, and uh, so that is a, a sad passing too. Um, um, okay. I wanted to talk. So last week we did a lot of um, agreement on this podcast about the need for federal intervention and federal activism and so forth and dealing with the crisis. And, and I'm okay with that, but a little queasy. So now in more in keeping with my natural bent, I want to mention a piece that appeared in Reason Magazine by uh, Eric Bohm, who recommends that if we want to deal with, if we want to radically increase the number of, uh, of, masks that, you know, medical masks that will be available to us, the simplest, simplest thing to do would be to, uh, to uh, adjust the regulations that the FDA and the CDC impose on importing masks. We could simply relax those regulations for a time and say that if a mask is, you know, passes muster, say in the EU, that it's okay with us. Um, and, Rather than, you know, for people who might be nervous about dropping our standards, let's reflect that the CDC has put out guidance in recent days saying that if they if they have no other option, um, that medical workers should fashion scarves for themselves. <laughs> so if we're if we're getting to that point, then surely changing the regulations and allowing uh, uh, masks to come in that might not normally pass muster seems like a sensible reform. I'll just say one last thing, which is um, my husband and I have made it a practice during this time to have virtual cocktails with as many people as we can, our children, our friends on a rolling basis. And, um, and I, you know, it's quite possible that when this awful period is over, we'll have closer friendships than we had going into it. So I highly recommend it. And thank you to the creators of Zoom for, uh, for making such a great uh, software that works so well. All right. Thank you one and all until next. I want everyone to stay as safe and healthy as possible. Keep, uh, 
keep self segregating or whatever it is we call it social di physical distancing we're told to call it physical distancing not social distancing 